This morning our text is Psalm 98, which was the Old Testament lesson. Psalm 98. Not only is this an exuberant psalm, it is actually, uh, for reasons that I hope will become clear, it is actually the psalm which is assigned historically in the church's lectionary, the church's system of readings. It's the historic psalm assigned to Christmas Day itself. It's preeminently a Christmas psalm. And, and the text consists of three very closely related stanzas. They're usually separated in your English Bible. And so we'll take a look at this psalm under three corresponding headings. In the first stanza, Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3, we'll have Israel's praise. Israel's praise. And then in the second stanza, which is in verses 4 through 6, we have the praise of the whole earth. And then in the third stanza, which is verses 7 through 9, we have the praise of the cosmos. This is, as the title suggests, the ever-expanding choir. The Lord's appearance evokes the praise of Israel. Israel's praise flows out into the praise of the nations, and then the praise of the nations calls forth and is joined by the whole universe in this never-ending symphony of glorious acclamation to the King who has come and is coming. So think of it as a kind of inverted pyramid where you move from the bottom to the top. You're moving from the particular, from Israel, out to the universal, from Israel to all the earth until the cosmos itself. And so Psalm 98's function, particularly as it functions as a Christmas psalm, teaches a very simple lesson. It teaches that Christmas, the incarnation, is about liberating you and I and the whole creation to sing. To sing. Free men and women, sing. So first, the praise of Israel. Verse 1, the sing to the Lord a new song. Now, if you ask where this idea of the new song comes from in Scripture, it's an interesting study. It actually is mentioned first in Isaiah, in the latter part of Isaiah, in association with Isaiah's depiction of that mysterious figure known as the servant of the Lord. And when the servant of the Lord appears, there is this new song which is constantly mentioned. And the idea gets echoed in the Psalms. And finally, this song is sung by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. The first fruits of redeemed humanity in the book of Revelation around the throne. This is a new song, and that means this is a song beyond all human reckoning. It has no fundamentally human composer. It's beyond the expectations of all the poets and all the songwriters of all the generations. This song's a new voice, a new melody in human history on the human scene because it's a response 
to the final, unique, decisive actions of God in history. It's a new psalm. And we are in this psalm passionately, passionately commanded to be its singers. Some translations have, oh, as if the psalmist were moaning, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Singing this song is the goal of creation. It's very reason for being. And the reason for the song is introduced there at the, the latter part of verse 1. He has done marvelous things. God has acted. He's done something wondrous. And this wonder provides the rationale for the song. His right hand, the text says, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. This uh, metaphor of the arm of the Lord, you find it first in the book of Exodus to speak of God's mighty deliverance of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage. He reaches down with his mighty arm and he saves Israel. And then it also appears in the latter half of Isaiah again. And it's constantly used there with the adjective holy, as it is here. His right hand and his holy arm. This is how God, by his holy arm, works salvation for his people. Look at verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation and revealed his righteousness. Salvation is mentioned three times here. It's mentioned in verse 1 and in verse 2 and in verse 3. And so when we speak of the arm of the Lord, we're speaking of an eruption of redemptive holiness into history by God, the divine warrior, the Savior who invades the darkness and procures salvation for his people, as he did for Israel of old. So let's, let's notice a couple things here. Um, First, this salvation brought about by the arm of the Lord, it's a holy, sovereign act. Holy from above, all of grace, it penetrates down into Israel's long, dark exile. Which is why it's so surprising. Which is why it's so new. Which is why it evokes this wondrous response of singing. It happens in the bleak midwinter of the world. But I think more importantly, this delivering arm has wrought salvation finally in Jesus Christ. But this is not just an act of raw authoritarian power. In the famous 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we all know that, right? Isaiah 53, the prophet is speaking of the servant of the Lord, the coming servant, speaking of Christ. He's describing his passions and his suffering in great detail. And he opens that chapter by saying, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And this means Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's baby, 
is the holy arm. The very being of the God of Israel extended into our darkness to save us from exile and from alienation. His gospel is the power of God unto salvation. His arm is the arm of the mighty warrior God. The God who appears in the womb of the virgin. And thus, it's interesting, in Mary's Magnificat, which we looked at at length here last week, and you'll recall, I said Mary was saturated in the Old Testament texts. And she echoes this text in a quite remarkable manner. I have no doubt that Mary had this very psalm, this very psalm in her heart when she sang her Magnificat. Let me note a couple echoes. Here, it's sing to the Lord a new song. Mary echoes, my soul does magnify the Lord. Here, it's he has done marvelous things. Mary echoes, he that is mighty has done great things. Here, his right hand and his holy arm have wrought salvation. Mary echoes, he has shown the strength of his arm and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Here, it's he has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. In verse 3, Mary echoes, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercies. Mary knew this was a Christmas psalm. Her babe is the arm of the Lord. The mighty work of salvation which God has wrought. And so when we say this is something God has done, and here I'm probably beating a dead Advent horse because it seems like I say this every week. We are making a distinctly historical public claim. The gospel is news. It's news about what God has accomplished, what he's done openly in history. That's the supreme importance for us of those phrases in the creed. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven was made man, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This mighty bearing of the arm of God happened. This momentous thing happened at a specific place, at a specific time, under a specific ruler, in a specific political order. And so we have what God has done and how it provides the, the rationale for the song. And in verse 3, we get the background. He has remembered his love, his covenant love, and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Again, just like Mary, this action has roots in the covenant, in the promises God made with Israel. When God acts in Jesus Christ, he's remembering, acting according to, his mercy and his faithfulness to Israel. Mary noted this as well. Jesus cannot be, as we say, Scandinavian. He cannot just drop down out of heaven with no prehistory. The hopes and fears of all of Israel's years are met in him. And this is why in this song, it is first Israel. Right? The first stanza of this psalm is about Israel singing the new song. And you're the Israel of God. And so you're exhorted by this text 
to sing to the Lord, to participate in this unending new song in the newness of the new covenant. Second point here, then, is the praise of all the earth. Now you'll notice the nations have been mentioned already in the first stanza. But they're mentioned as observers, basically. They see. But the end of verse 3 makes clear that they're not only going to see, but that the ends of the earth, the nations, are going to have the good news, the gospel proclaimed to them. And so what God has done in Israel, for Israel, out of Israel's history, is going to resound through every tribe and tongue and language. And to a large extent, that's already happened in history, has it not? Virtually everybody here is probably not an Israelite, but a Gentile who's been summoned into this song. The wonder of this is easy to lose because we just assume our situation as human nature is the normal, normative situation. Right? That, that, as I've said before, that it's normal for kids from New Jersey to be worshiping Yahweh, the Semitic deity of the ancient Israel people. We just think that, that, that's, that's normal. What's really strange is if Jews would do that. Right? It's a wonder that you're here. It's an astonishing wonder that you're here. It, you're here in fulfillment of the ancient promises that go back to Abraham. Through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Israel's song echoes out to the nations. So Christianity is making not only these specific, narrow historical claims, it then goes on to make these universal claims. It seeks the joy of the incarnation to be embraced by all the nations. You can't shut this up provincially in any one culture or people. This song shatters the borders of Israel. And so what you get in this next stanza, in verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 98, you get this massive summons to the nations to join into the new song. We're moving up the inverted pyramid choir from Israel at the bottom up to the other lands. And this is made clear in verse 4. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Right? It's joy to the world. The Lord has come. So what has been wrought in Israel? The nations are now to participate in. And this section of the psalm, this is a noisy section. Right? The dreary, C.S. Lewis always speaks about a place where it's always winter, but never Christmas. This, this is a, the dreariness of winter is shattered by the Christian event, which is to be and has been celebrated in every tongue. The incarnation of the Son of God has filled the world with throngs of things that are bright and beautiful and warm. It really has. You know, I'm not a particularly sentimental person, but even the secular Christmas stuff has a certain innocence and charm and good cheer about it, does it not? You know, jingle bells and I'm dreaming of a white Christmas and all that stuff, even in its muted 
even in its refracted form, light radiates, radiates out from the womb of Mary. And it fills the nations. Now, it's interesting, I, I read this week a Pew study. You may have seen it. I, I found it fascinating. It said this, you know, that uh, three-quarters of Americans believe that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary and that angels appeared to shepherds to tell them that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. 75%. Now, after all the decades of assault and acidic criticism, right? after all of the kind of uh, corrosive sorts of subtle attacks, 75%. Over 80%, the study said, of Americans believe Luke's account that Jesus was laid in a manger. I thought no intelligent person believed this stuff anymore. I mean, you would think nobody believes this if all you had was our elite media culture. That's a recent study. This study just came out. Over 80% believe Luke's account. The study found that about 65% believed in all the historical aspects of the nativity. Now, you know, of course, this, is, this could be a mixed bag. doesn't mean they all believe in the incarnation in the sense of the Son of God made man. We don't know all the details of the study, but it does show that it is hard to suppress this light. That it, that it fends for itself quite well. That it has, in fact, gone out into the world and lit the world up. And even in Europe and in the West, where we are trying so desperately to snuff the light out, the light still does shine. And yet, the world would be infinitely poorer without the church's international celebration of Christmas. Right? No Handel's Messiah. No joy to the world. No O come all ye faithful. None of the luminous hymnody which sustains the church. This one single action of God's holy arm has bequeathed some of the most gorgeous and moving and enduring music the world has known. The highest theme has produced the highest art. Notice then in the text this we are to sing. These are commands. Shout for joy. Burst into jubilant song. Make music. Some of these commands are repeated twice. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes there are people who don't sing. Or we sing so anemically to be virtually disobedient to this robust call to full-throated singing. We always need to work on this, don't we? You ask any pastor in any church, and he'd say, we need to sing better. Our people need to sing better, including me. Volume. Volume, imagine that. Projection. As I've said before, there are people standing within six feet of you 
who have never heard your voice. They have no idea what it sounds like. They can't hear you. Noise, the text says, is not optional. They're required. So we have to shake off our self-consciousness, whether we like our voices or not. God has bared his holy arm in the sight of the nations. He's laid claim to the, to the breath that's in our lungs. Note all the instruments, the lyre and the harp, the trumpets, the horn. All the nations are to have their own choirs, their own symphonies. And the, the, the reason, again, is given in succinct form in verse 6. The, the king, before whom we're to shout for joy, is the Lord. This is actually a, a, a simple statement that kind of goes right by when you read the psalm, but it is really amazing as well. Because Israel had a human king, and all the nations around them had human kings. The point here is, first, that the Lord is the true king. Israel's, Israel's king points to the kingship of the Lord God. But this is a claim that Israel's king, the Lord, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the king of all the nations. It's a rather radical claim. He who is revealed in Christ is no local or provincial deity. And even I think more relevant to us in the light of what has happened in Jesus, this tells us that the manifestation of God's holy arm, as it has come to us in Jesus, is a manifestation of God's kingly power. This is God as king. Never has there been regal splendor like this. So, for us, Mary's womb is the doorway to the sapphire throne. And it turns out that Psalm 98 is what uh, scholars call a royal enthronement psalm. It's a psalm sung when the king was enthroned. And this means that the self-emptying of God in Jesus Christ is one long act of kingly triumph. Right, even the, even the song we sang as a the famous hymn of preparation, Joy to the World... The Lord has come. Let earth, all the earth, receive her king. This humiliation, this self-emptying, is an act of kingly splendor. And so finally, the praise of the cosmos or the whole universe. All right, this is the final movement up the pyramid. Israel, the nations, the cosmos. And here... The orchestra of nature joins into the movement. Verse 7, let the sea resound and everything in it. Not only the waters, the infinite waters, but all the strange and scary creatures. Everything in it. Organic and inorganic. They're not only to join in the song, the psalm says they're to resound. They're to roar. And in verse 8, this poetic personification continues. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the mountains sing together for joy. You know, this is what animated in part St. Francis. And he was no fool when he called on the burning sun and the silver moon and all creatures of our God and King 
to praise him. Rushing wind and clouds and the rising morn, the lights of evening, the fire so masterful and bright. Israel's God and king, the the king of the nations, is the creator and sustainer of all things in and through Jesus Christ. And his appearance then calls forth praise from all that he has made. The Apostle Paul tells us that, like ourselves, the creation groans. We groan, it groans. And Paul says it, it, it travails in childbirth, awaiting redemption. And now that that redemption has appeared, in between the contractions, the creation is supposed to sing. Israel and the nations are to sing and the stones are to cry out. Now we are calling, summoning the sea and the rivers and the hills, Francis-like, to obey these commands every week in the doxology when we sing, praise him all creatures here below. That's you echoing Psalm 98. And when we add praise Him above ye heavenly hosts, we are assured from the book of Revelation that our plea is perpetually heard because there are four living creatures around the throne. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And those creatures, four of them, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, and one like an eagle, they are heavenly counterparts to the whole realm of creatures. And what they teach us is that it's the inner mystery, it's the destiny of the whole creation to sing To the king. In other words, the whole created order has its four representatives right now around the throne singing to the king. And we're given yet another reason for the universal choir in verse 9. All of this creaturely frolicking is done before the Lord. Get this, because the Lord comes to judge the earth. So here we see the second advent of the Lord's holy arm. In this text, both advents are telescoped together. The first and second coming of Christ. And so this doctrine in verse 9, the doctrine of the coming judge is part of the good news. It's part of the summons to the song. It's part of the gospel. Now, he is coming, as the text says, to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, I want to point out something that I think is very important here. This coming of God, the God who bore his holy arm in Jesus and who will manifest his holy arm again at Jesus' second coming, this coming to judge the people with equity is good news. You'll see this throughout the Psalms, actually. It's sheer joy here in it. There's no terror in it at all. I think we often lose sight of this when we think about the second coming and the final judgment. But what we're missing is that for a world that's bent and twisted, 
Right? For a world where death is the basic reality, for, for, for languishing sinners, for a groaning creation, this coming is its final liberation, its final healing and restoration. And so we confess this coming with the psalmist to be the cause of rejoicing and jubilation in the church and in the creation. You should think of the second coming this way, with great anticipation and exaltation. G.K. Chesterton said this, he said, Man is more himself, man is more manlike, when joy is the fundamental thing in him, and grief the superficial thing. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. There is a sense in which Psalm 98 reminds us that that for all of the bitterness and darkness and hardness and brokenness and disappointment of life, joy triumphs. The God who has appeared in Jesus Christ brings indestructible joy. He goes down to the bottom of the darkness. He defeats it. He raises him, he's raised up out of it and he will appear again to reconcile and restore the creation. And that means at the end of the day, Chesterton's right. Joy is the fundamental thing in the Christian. Grief is the superficial thing, no matter how bitter that grief might be. It must be that way if God has borne his holy arm in Jesus Christ. It must be that way. So Israel sings. The song spreads to you and I, to the nations, and through the whole universe. This means we praise God for what he's done in the past, for what he's doing in Christ, and what he shall do when he comes to judge the world in righteousness. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He has done marvelous things. Amen.